We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As we mentioned this morning, of course, Paul had come into Corinth, and we picked up the action in the book of Acts uh, about Paul coming into Corinth and some of the, uh, the things that he experienced there and the success that he had. And uh, I want to look at uh, some comments that he mentioned in the letter back to this church, and he's reflecting on what we just read about this morning about him coming to Corinth, and he reveals his missionary strategy of the, what he employed in order to evangelize the city and why he did things the way he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have a missionary uh, effort as well. We have a responsibility for reaching this area and, of course, reaching the world. Help us as we look at the Apostle Paul to recognize the most effective missionary strategy, that our time would be most effective and not wasted. Make us into the church you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What Paul says before he says anything about what he did, and how he did it, he said what he left out. And that was important. He said this, When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom when I declared to you the testimony of God. Now, why would he intentionally say that he did not come in excellence of speech? You see, this was important because Corinth, above all cities in the Roman Empire, was full of slick religious and philosophical hustlers who spoke with high-sounding intellectualism and uh, clever debating skills. And these, of course, would come into town and they would, have, they would attract crowds. Now, always they included a pitch for people to support what they were doing. And that's why Paul made a deliberate effort to support himself by working with his own hands, and he even told them later on in the second letter to the Corinthians, I was not chargeable to any of you. And this morning when we spoke of the fact that the Apostle Paul devoted all of his time to preaching the gospel and possibly did not have to work the second job, that wasn't because he got money from any of the Corinthians. They were filled up and probably up to here with these slick-sounding guys who came into town and tried clever debating skills and rhetoric and slogans. And I want us to realize this. Paul was intellectually adequate as much as anybody who walked the planet at the time to spar with these guys. When you look through the doctrinal discussions 
in the letters that he wrote to the churches. And there's where, of course, we get our doctrinal statement is from these letters as he outlines the doctrine of Jesus Christ and of the church. We realize that he comes across as an attorney that's pleading his case. Now, the reason for that is Paul was an attorney. He was a Pharisee. He was uh, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was very well learned. And when you look at his doctrinal dissertations, they are airtight when it comes to biblical evidence. They are ironclad solid. So we understand Paul could have stood toe-to-toe with any intellectual guy on the field. However, Paul recognized when he came into town, this was not an intellectual sparring match. And as much as he could have tried to win the crowd over with his intellectual skills, he realized this was a spiritual battle, not an intellectual sparring match, not a debate onto this principle and this philosophy over this philosophy, because Christianity is not just another philosophy. If you're debating a political view or something like that, sure, that's what you would need. But Paul outlines exactly what was going on if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for the putting down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalt himself against the knowledge of the... Uh, to the beating of, of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The weapons of our warfare are not what? Fleshly, but they are spiritual. Now, Paul had engaged this kind of defense earlier. If you look in, of course, the book of Acts, when Paul was on Mars Hill, I believe it's in uh, chapter 17. He, of course, presents as brilliant of a defense of the gospel as any. And he, of course, utilizes some of these skills and pulling in the unknown God, the altar that they had. And you know what they said after he said all of this? I mean, it was an ironclad argument. That was true. They said, later. That's what they said. We'll hear from you again later. And so that's what happens People can just say later. But what happened at Corinth? He said this, your blood is on your own head. In other words, this is a spiritual battle. As of now, you're responsible for what you've done with this. You can say later, but you see, that response is your response. See, any other response besides a yes is a no. So people can say later to the gospel, But that's a rejection of the gospel. And he made that crystal clear. So what he left out were clever sounding wisdom and words and and these kind of arguments. What he was sure to include is this. 
I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The simplicity of the gospel. That was his missionary strategy. Not that he scorned education, being prepared, and any, any other advantage that we could use. But what he said is this. This cannot be left out. It does not matter what kind of clever tools we have to evangelize a city, what kind of outreach we have, and what kind of public relations we have. and what All of these things are good. But when it comes down to it, what wins souls and brings people to Christ and changes life is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, he had already had this discussion back in chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, and he says this, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what did he include? The message of the cross. It may have seemed to be foolish and simple and a little bit subpar to those who were coming up and wanting an intellectual sparring match with him. He comes through with just the plain, simple message of the gospel, and it's like, that's it? And that's what Paul said. Yes, that is it. That is everything. He concludes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The power of the preaching of the cross. We can have everything else going for us. But if we don't have that, we'll be ineffective when it comes to reaching this community and the world. So what he was sure to include, Paul's method was this, that they would see less of him and more of Jesus. Oh, he could have shined. Paul could have shined and stood toe-to-toe with the rest of them. But he he chose not to do that. Warren Wiersbe, a Bible scholar, tells a story of a uh, big church had a big stained glass window behind the, uh, the pulpit. And, and their pastor was a pretty good-sized man, and they had a visiting speaker. And they had a visiting speaker, and he was a small man. And he was a very small man, and on the stained glass window was a picture of Jesus Christ. And this small man began to preach, and there was a little girl in the audience, and she elbowed her mom, and she said, Why is it? that when this man speaks, I can see more of Jesus in the stained glass. He was smaller. She saw less of him and more of Jesus. Now, that's the way it ought to be with the church. That's the way it ought to be with any of us. The world needs to see less of us and more of Jesus Christ. See, Paul had his own confession when he said, I came to you in the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ And, of course, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What he said in verse 3 is, and I really wasn't much when I came to your town. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, we look at that and we say that does not describe the Apostle Paul that we look at overall 
in the, the uh, missionary journeys. I mean, he's a powerhouse. But he says of his own self, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Well, why would Paul come to town in Corinth in weakness? Well, do you remember as we look through the book of Acts and Paul hits town in Corinth in Acts chapter 18? Two chapters earlier, not just a few weeks earlier, we understand he was in Philippi. What happened in Philippi? Well, of course, we know that he went into town and people were being saved. But we also know that because people were being saved, the town came up and drew him and Silas into the marketplace and beat him with rods. Beat him with rods. Now, now what does that involve? Well, I happen to have one right here. It was something like that. Something like that. Archaeologists and historians know that the Roman method for punishment was something like this. Now, this doesn't look like much unless somebody hits you with it. So what they would do, what the method was, is to tie you over a beam and tie you to a post where you were bent over. And then they would have this big guy that take this rod with both hands and he would, he would hit you. Now... The Jews had a method of punishment that was 39 stripes save one. You see, that was merciful. They didn't want to hit you 40 times, so they'd back it up one. Here's the thing. Romans did not have that kind of mercy. And when you were beat with this, it would lay their back open, and they would be bleeding and bruised. Then, if you remember, after that, they were thrown in jail. Now, the, actual, the actual Greek says they were thrust into the inner prison. You ever heard the expression, they're going to throw you under the jail for that? Literally, he was in the basement of the prison. Prisons were notoriously filthy. Nobody got a bathroom break. Everything went to the bottom of the prison. Not only that, they didn't do bed checks real often to prison. Sometimes there were dead people in there that had been dead for a long time. In addition to that, while were Paul and Silas placed in the prison? They were placed in stocks. They were placed in stocks to the point where your feet were spread out far, put in wooden stocks and locked there, and you were forced to sit upright. Prisons were notoriously filthy, and they were thrown in the bottom of the jail with open wounds, and with all the filth, jails... You could smell a, a Roman jail typically a couple of miles downwind. They were hideous. And here's another thing. There was a lasting problem if you were thrown in jail. Jails were notoriously infested with lice. So once you were in jail, you took some visitors with you when you went home. So that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul would take a while to get over this because Paul... Uh, was not a, a very young man at this time. Uh, he wasn't an elderly gentleman, but we understand to be beaten with rods and to be placed in that prison and, can, and of course, exposed to that kind of filth, even though, you remember, his, his stripes were washed that night, he still was in there long enough to where it was not good. And that's when he hit, went to Corinth, he had been through all that. He definitely wasn't in the prime of his life. So we understand here was Paul, and all he had to stand on was the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. You see, here's an unchangeable truth. Smooth talk can never be as effective as the evidence of a changed life. And he said this in verse 4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What did he say? He said, I didn't have to convince you with words. I showed you what God could do for a life. See, here's the the thing. People can argue against arguments and debates and words. Nobody can effectively argue against the power of a life that's been changed. And he said this, when I came to you, I simply came to you in the demonstration of what God can do. William Barclay, Greek scholar, tells a story uh, as he looked at this passage of scripture of the power of the changed life. And uh, it it appears that an uh, alcoholic had come to the Lord and had turned around and changed his life. And he was a Christian, and everybody knew he was a Christian, but he had some co-workers, of course, that were skeptical. And, of course, they said, man, you can't really believe the Bible that Jesus could do all these miracles. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus turned the water to wine? He said this, sir, I don't know for sure if Jesus turned the water to wine, But I know this for sure, in my house and in my life, he turned beer into furniture and house payments and food on the table. God did that. How can you argue with that? How can you argue with the evidence of a changed life? That was Paul's missionary strategy. And he wraps it all up. He said that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because here's the thing. Anybody who's won over with just slick talk and and debate skills, what if somebody else comes with better slick talk? Hmm. What they need to see is the power of a changed life. There is no effective argument against that. He said, I want to be sure that your faith is the real thing, that it stands in the power of God. How is that? They have to see the power of God. How do they see the power of God? In the evidence of a changed life. So Paul came showing them, preaching the gospel of Christ, but showing them the real deal of what the gospel could do in his own life. There's our missionary strategy. Is there anything before we close? 